All right. Good morning. My name is Dwayne Spearman. This is Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Today is November the 3rd, and we are still finding and studying our way through the book of Acts. And today we arrive in chapter number 27. So <clears throat> anyway, I can't help but uh, state the obvious. Today is election day in the United States. So <laughs> a lot of apprehensive folks running around. I guess yours truly is one of them. But, you know, we just have to acknowledge that God is in control and, uh, no matter what, you know, we are here to serve the Lord in this little bit of time that we have upon this earth. And he decides the circumstances under which we serve him. And we just uh, commit ourselves to him. We're going to keep teaching the word of God. Um, and that's really all we can do. The rest is up to him. Amen. Uh, so uh, today we find ourselves in chapter number 27. Remember, chapter number 26 was all about uh, Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. And, of course, King Agrippa, we talked about how he was a descendant of Herod the Great, um, who was Idumean. Their descendants were Edomites, uh, which means Herod Agrippa was very familiar with Jewish um Jewish law, very familiar with Jewish customs, very familiar with um, Mosaic law. So Paul was definitely a couple times, you know, asking, you know, you, I know you believe, don't you? You know, because Agrippa was very familiar, much more so than Festus or Felix would have been as Gentiles. Uh, so Paul in chapter number 26 has given his defense before Agrippa. And, of course, this would be the third time, this was the third time that Paul had shared his conversion experience on the road to Damascus from chapter number 9. Um, and, of course, um, at the conclusion of Paul's testimony um, in 2626, um, Paul said, For the king knoweth of these things where before these things before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden for, from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. In other words, I know that you're not clueless in regards to what I'm talking about, Agrippa. And King Agrippa, he asks, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that you do. And then Agrippa said unto Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And again, you know, uh, context is key here. Why would King Agrippa use the word Christian here? Paul hadn't mentioned that word at all. Paul was uh, defending himself. You know, and just for clarification, I was thinking back on my previous studies, um, Paul's defense before the Rome, before the Jews, you know, when Lysias first arrested him and before he went to the council, was all about the accusation, which was, um, keeping the law of Moses and circumcision and the customs. That's what he'd been accused of violating. But once it transitioned and Tertullius come in and he's standing before Felix, now the, the whole prosecution, if you will, uh, it wasn't about those things anymore because the Romans could have cared less about those things. Those were what they called the Jewish superstition. 
Uh, at that point, they accused him of being a pestilent fellow, a troublemaker, a seditionist, an insurrectionist. Those are things that Rome would have cared about. And at that point forward, it began. It it it, it turned into Paul defending himself, as far as the Romans were concerned, against those things. But of course, Felix, Festus, and even Grippa here, uh, we saw saw straight through that, and they realized that. This was all about uh, Jewish law. This was all about, quote, the superstitions. Um, and, and all three of them concluded that Paul had done nothing worthy of death. But, you know, he had already appealed his case to Caesar. And we talked about how the reason, why did they allow him to go to Caesar if all three of them had already determined that the accusations against Paul were, uh, were false? Um, political expediency is why I believe they decided to go ahead and let him just get him out of Jerusalem, get him into Rome so things would calm down. Um, because we were, we're only a couple of years now from the War of the Jews when the mass rebellion would have took place in 68 and, of course, was quashed in 70 AD by Titus Vespasian. So, um, so anyway, why did Paul, why did Agrippa use the word Christian? Obviously, in Agrippa's mind, uh, he thought that's what the followers of this Christ were, Christians. And Christian just means, you know, little Christ followers. Um, so the word, just understand, is not uniquely applied to the body of Christ, if at all, in the Scripture. Because the only time the word is used, it's only used three times in the New Testament. Uh, it's used when they were first called Christians at Antioch. It's used here, and it's used by Peter in First Peter. And in all three of those instances, uh, it's uh, referring to Jewish believers. Uh, because in Acts chapter number 11, when, when it was first used, um, it's highly doubtful that Paul had received the revelation of the mystery by then. Paul was just preaching the resurrection. Uh, so just something to think about. Again, words have meaning. Um, <laughs> and then Paul said in verse 29, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except in these bonds. In other words, he's speaking of his faith in Christ. I wish all of them had that. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor and Bernice, and they that sat with him. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or bonds. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to Caesar. And again, we're dealing with political expediency here. Uh, they just wanted to kick the can down the road. They didn't want to have to deal with him with everything that was happening in Jerusalem. So today we break into Romans chapter number 20, Romans, we break into Acts chapter number 27. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. The we here, uh, that, that we should sail, obviously is Luke. Luke is pinning this the fact that Paul is allowed to travel with his friends speaks to the amount of freedom that he had, even though he was still technically under house arrest. So obviously he was not in bonds and chains, you know, so, so to speak. I mean, 
I mean, obviously he he was under arrest and uh, but he still was able to travel. He was still with his friends. And this speaks to the fact that they really didn't have anything against him. Uh, and he was a Roman citizen. So they were kind of handling, handling him with kit gloves at this point. And entering to a ship and Adramitin, Andramitium, I think, <laughs> we launched, uh, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. So Aristarchus, you remember, he was first in- introduced back in Acts chapter number 19 and verse 29 when he and Gaius or Gaius were caught up in the riot at Ephesus. So apparently he was still a part of uh, Paul's company. And the next day we touched in Sidon and Julius courteously entreated Paul. So again, courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends and refresh himself. So again, it's pretty obvious that Paul's quote arrest was a pretty loose one. And then in verse four, and when we had launched from thence, we sailed unto Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. And there, there the, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete and over against Solomon A. So obviously they were traveling slowly. They were having problems with the wind. When it says the wind was not allowing, that's what suffering means. The wind was not allowing us. So we sailed under, bear in mind, these were wind-powered ships. And hardly passing it, came into the place which is called the Fair Havens. Nigh whereinto was the city of Lacia. Again, we see a little bit of Paul's travel itinerary. Um, And then in verse 9, And now when much time was spent and when sailing was dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. Now, Now, when the time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was already passed. The fast that Luke is referring to is the Day of Atonement, which would mean that this would have been uh, in the month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar, which would have been part of September or part of October. Uh, and the fast that he's referring to is the one that happened on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus twenty-three twenty-seven, And on the 10th day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. So the 10th day would have been Tishri. uh, And he's saying we are past that now. So obviously it was 11 and onward. Uh, It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So interestingly, the Old Testament really doesn't say that it was a fast day, but it did say you were to afflict your souls and the teachers of the day had translated that to mean a fast. Uh, so we know Paul is traveling sometime in, uh, you know, the end of the end of September, the beginning of October here. Barnes, one of my favorite commentators, says, historically, this is the time of the autumnal equinox. Uh, and when the navigation of the Mediterranean was esteemed to be particularly dangerous, 
From the storms which usually occurred about that time, the ancients regarded this as a very dangerous time to navigate the Mediterranean. So historically, this was a dangerous time to be sailing. And then in verse 10, And said unto them, Sirs, this is Paul speaking, I perceive that this voyage will be hurt and much damage, not only of the laden and ship, but also of our lives. So Paul, now whether or not Paul spoke out of just natural perception, looking around, noting that it was the time of year when it was very dangerous to sail, or if this was something supernatural, we don't know, but Paul perceived that the voyage was going to be with hurt and much damage, not only with the cargo and the ship, but also the people who were on board the ship. Uh, But verse number 11, nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken of by Paul. So Paul was overruled. Nobody wanted to hear what the preacher had to say. And then in verse 12, and because the haven was not commodious, the word commodious just means suitable, because the haven was not suitable to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also. In other words, it's almost like there was a vote taken, <clears throat> and every, the majority said we need to leave. If by any means we might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south, west, and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed close to Crete. So Luke here is filling in the details, as any good physician would do. Uh, We know that Luke was a physician because in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. Uh, As a physician, he had an attention to detail, not only here in the book of Acts, but also in his gospel. As a matter of fact, Many see Acts as just part two of Luke's gospel account. Um, and remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke make up what is called the synoptics. And the word synoptic just means seeing together because they were so similar in the way that they they were written. Of course, the gospel of John breaks that mold. But Luke is the longest, and many account this to Luke's just fastidious attention to detail. And then notice in verse number 14, but not long after there arose a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. Now the word tempestuous uh, is where we get the word typhoon. Um, It's where we get the word typhoon um, today. Um, And it's, it, it, which might have accounted for the weather conditions. In other words, they may have been going through a typhoon. Um, again, the word tempestuous here in 2714, and there arose a tempestuous wind, uh, stormy. You can see typhoonicus, typhoonicus, uh, again, typhoonicus, which is where we get the word uh, tycoon today. And then the other interesting word is the tempestuous wind that was called Euroclidon. And the word Euroclidon just means from the east. Uh, it's an east wind. Um, today, we would call it a northeaster. Um, so a little bit of, uh, you know, just looking into what the words mean there. 
Uh, Barnes says the interpreters have been much per- perplexed about the meaning of the word, which occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The most probable supposition is that it denotes a wind not blowing steadily from any quarter, but a hurricane or a wind veering about to different quarters. Such hurricanes are known to, to abound in the Mediterranean and are now called Levanters, deriving their name from blowing chiefly in the Levant or the eastern part of the Mediterranean. So pretty interesting stuff there, at least for those of us who love to study the Bible. <laughs> you know, that's just stuff most people would just blow over, wouldn't even think anything about it. But but anyway, I think we've spent enough, we've been together 16 minutes. Let's look at one other verse. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up the wind, we let her drive. To let a ship drive means literally uh, to let go of the wheel. You heard that song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Here you go. This is where that came from. Um, just let go of the wheel. Uh, let the wind take it. I mean, you couldn't fight it anymore. And running under a certain island, which is called Clouda, we had much work to come by the boat. Now, when it says that, what does that mean? It means that they had a hard time saving the lifeboat. They were trying to secure the lifeboat because they didn't want to lose it. <laughs> because bear in mind, they're about to lose everything. Um, so they're trying to secure uh, this lifeboat. And in verse 17, and when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand strike sail, and so we're driven. So another navigational term is undergirding the ship. That simply means that they took uh, cables or rope and they completely wrapped them around the bottom of the ship. In other words, you throw it off the port side and you pull it back up on the starboard side. Uh, on the, you throw it off one side, you lace it under the ship, you pull it up on the other side and you you secure it fast. Of course, the whole point was to help the ship hold together so that the boards and the planks wouldn't start splintering. Um, interestingly, uh, I looked it up. The word is actually frapping. It's called frapping. To frap a ship is to pass four or five turns of a large cable-laid rope around the hull or the frame of the ship to support her in a great storm. Or otherwise, when it is apprehended that she is not strong enough to resist the violent efforts of the sea. So, yeah, we learned some navigational terms today. So uh, tomorrow when we get together, we'll pick up in verse number 18. God bless you guys. Hope that you have a great day. And remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for your good. And I encourage you, share this video uh, with some folks that you think might be interested in, in this teaching. Um, and, uh, I appreciate you guys. Have a great day.